You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. We multiplied two of our gospel communities this week. Uh, If you're new to our church, gospel communities are just what we call our small groups. In fact, people in our church call them all kinds of things, but the official name is gospel communities. Uh, We have about 15 groups that meet throughout the city, and they are are so central to the life and to the mission of our church. It's it's really one of the most important things that we do, which is why we're constantly inviting you to get plugged into one. And the main way we start new groups is by multiplying them. So we take an existing group that's grown, that has a lot of health to it, and a core group of that people is sent out by them uh, to start a new group in another part of the city. And uh, we did that this morning in the group that we attend. Uh, as part of that commissioning ceremony, we, we share about just how the group's impacted us, what our experience has been. We talk about the good things that God has done in that community. And as I was listening to my friends share this morning, uh, I was so encouraged by it, just the way that people have, have grown in their own faith as they've gotten around the Word together. Uh, the way that they've been challenged and impacted by their relationships with one another, it was really encouraging. It got me excited. Uh, it got me excited to think about what God's going to do through these two groups, uh, how what these two groups are doing are really connected to a much larger vision of multiplying churches and groups within those churches, so that someday, anywhere in the city, everyone who's connected to Providence or some church that's connected to us could walk to a gospel community, or that they would have some localized context for for mission and community. That's the vision. Now, I've had that vision for, well, since we started, but I'm not always excited about the vision. Uh, Full disclosure, two days ago, I was daydreaming about moving to a small town and getting an easier job. Now, that's not what I really want, I don't think. (laughs) Let me just think about it for a second. No, that's not what I really want. Um... What I really want is the vision, but sometimes the vision makes me tired. Sometimes I'm not excited about it. Uh, But this morning, I I was jolted out of that world. So I I tend to escape to this small town with this easy job, and and life in that world really just is me sitting on a porch, drinking good coffee, and writing books. That's, That's the world I escape to, and I don't know what your escape world looks like, but it's probably like mine in that it doesn't exist. None of these escape worlds exist, which is why we continue to, you know, be here together, because those places aren't real. Um, but this morning reminded me of something, which, which is a third world, if you will. All right, so there's the, there's the escape world that we go to, and then there's this, this world that we're in, this physical reality that we live and work and play in. But there is another world, a third world, an unseen reality, but it's real all the same. It's the kingdom of God among us. That's the world I was reminded of this morning. As people were sharing, I was jolted out of my porch coffee book world, and I got a glimpse of the grace of God at work in people's lives, and it just reminded me, oh, this is, this is way better. This is what life is really about. And it just, I, I think that's probably a struggle that we all have a tendency to kind of drift in and out of kingdom reality. I drift to the porch, but we all drift to something, some comfort, some pleasure, some power that's offered in this physical 
reality, as if this is all there is. And we need to be reminded often of that other world, that this isn't all there is. This isn't, I mean, this is real. This is a true life we're living, but it's not ultimate reality. There's another story. And in this letter that we're studying in 2 Timothy, that's what Paul is doing. He's reminding Timothy of the true story. You see, Timothy's in a tough spot. Uh, Timothy is watching his mentor suffer in prison. Timothy is pastoring a church in Ephesus where, that Paul planted. And, you know, there's some challenges going on in Ephesus. There's problems within his church. There's opposition to his preaching. And I, I can only imagine that Timothy is tempted at times to drift somewhere. Because he's looking at Paul and he's thinking, I'm going to end up like this guy. That, those are the odds here. And Paul is writing this letter to his beloved son in the faith, and he's saying, don't drift. Don't do that. Stay in the game. Get after it. Live in the real, true story. Guard the gospel, Timothy. And Paul reminds him of the story that he's in. So we looked at last week. He starts by recounting Timothy's heritage of faith through his family. It's like, Timothy, remember your grandmother and your mother, they passed the gospel down to you. And he reminds them of their partnership in the gospel, all that that they had been through. He takes them back to his ordination and he says, Timothy, remember when I laid my hands on you, I commissioned you to preach the gospel. See what he's saying? He's saying every, every part of your life is marked by the gospel. And if you want to live in the kingdom, if you want to live in the gospel story, then you've got to give yourself to it. You've got to own it. You've got to love it got to cherish it. Guard the gospel, Timothy. The gospel, Paul says, is the true story, and it's our story. And that's the way he frames it in this little section. He talks about the gospel in three tenses. He talks about it in the past, talks about it in the present, talks about it in the future. Those are the basic parts of a story, I think. Um, But he also wants Timothy to locate himself in the story. Because if he can connect just the current situation, the current threats and suffering and hardship that he's going through to the bigger picture, that's how he'll find the perspective and the courage he needs to live in the gospel story. And the same is true for us. If we can connect whatever is happening in our lives now to that bigger picture, to the story we really live in, the ultimate reality, we can find perspective and courage to give ourselves to the gospel. And so let's, let's look at it. Let's start with the past. This is going to be simple. And I think it's true to the letter. I think Paul's reminding Timothy of stuff he already knows, but stuff that he needs to feel deep in his gut. And that's our goal. Take stuff we know and let it sink deep in our soul. In this text, there's a real emphasis on the, the message of the gospel, or what we often refer to as the, the content of the gospel. Because in its essence, the gospel is a declaration. It's words. It's an announcement of good news about something that's happened in the past, in history. It involves a physical setting. It involves real people and facts. It involves personal testimony about what happened. The gospel is that kind of news. Uh, One good example is in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says this. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Here it is, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, 
that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Do you hear what Paul's saying? The gospel is an announcement about something that has happened in history. Not only was it according to the ancient scriptures, it was foretold by men long ago, it was witnessed by hundreds of people, most of whom are still around. Like, if you want to fact check the story, go ask them. They're still here. Christ was, de- uh, was died, was buried, was raised, and then appeared. That's the good news. This is what Paul calls in our text the testimony about our Lord. This is the news about what happened with Jesus. Now, you can disregard it. You can mock it. You can suppress it. You can believe it and share it. it doesn't, however you respond to it, it happened. That's the nature of historical reality or historical events. And Paul's telling Timothy, look, listen, we don't suffer for some fictional story. I don't have like my, my legacy on the line here in some way that I'm, that I'm so full of myself that I've made this thing up so that we could suffer for it. Who does that? Nobody suffers for something they know to be a lie. Now listen, people suffer, people die for things that aren't true all the time, but not things that they don't think are true. You see what I'm saying? The people that Jesus appeared to were radically convinced that he had raised from the dead. There's really no other way to explain all of their martyrdom for the faith. There's no other way to explain the, um, the development of the doctrine of the resurrection in the early church because nobody had a category for that kind of thing. Everything about what happened in the early church was based on the reality of a risen Christ. And so Paul's saying, we, we suffer because we're committed to the reality of Christ. Then he says, this historical event, this story, is our story now. We've been swept up in it. Look at verse 9. So verse 8, he says, don't be ashamed of the gospel, of the testimony of our Lord, but join in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Verse 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. So the nature of our salvation, that's that's the story we're in, is that God did it. We didn't achieve our salvation. We didn't earn it in any way. It is not the case that we stepped back and considered all of the religious options out there. And in our own wisdom and in our own insight, you know, made the right choice. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying the nature of our salvation is that God did it. We didn't take hold of him. He took hold of of us. He saved us. He called us to a holy calling. Why? Because of his own purpose and grace, is the rest of that verse. We're in this story not because of our purposes and not because of our merit, but because of his purposes, that is, his plans, his idea, his wisdom, not ours, and because of his grace, that is, his choosing His merit, his power, not ours. Now, here's the kicker. This is is amazing. This is how verse 9 finishes. So God saved us and called us because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us 
in Christ Jesus before the ages began. That is mind-blowing. Our salvation was planned before time began. God was writing us into the story before we existed. The deep sense that's inside, I think, everyone, all of humanity, is that we're connected to something. That there's got to be some bigger thing, some force, some, something out there that we're connected to, that we're a part of. And you know what? That deep sense that we all have is true. Now, we spend lots of time and effort and money trying to connect ourselves to all kinds of things, things that are really just imposters, when what we're searching for is the true thing, the gospel. Every other story begins this way, once upon a time. The gospel story begins this way, before time began. It's ultimate reality. Look where Paul goes next. This is what happened in time and space. God's purposes began before time, but verse 10, they now have been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. The purpose and the grace of God for our salvation was manifested through the appearing. So it was made visible, it was revealed in the appearing of Christ Jesus. This is what the whole testament of the New Testament is, but I love how John puts it. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made through Him. And then he says, the Word, Jesus, became flesh. He, he dwelt among us. We beheld Him. We, we have seen His glory. Glory as the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. Before time began, the Son and the Father are writing it out, anticipating, thinking, planning our salvation. And then in time, space, history, the Son appears, takes on flesh to accomplish the plan. And what does He do to accomplish our salvation. Verse 10, he abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. Which is to say, he abolished death as an eternal separation from God. He abolished the sting of death. And in its place, he brought to us immortality and life. He died so we could live. The gospel is the good news that God saves us, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Not because we found him, but because he knew us before we existed. Not because we have elevated, ascended to some spiritual height or status or knowledge, but because he has descended into our world to abolish death, to die in our place, and to bring us life. That's the news. That's the testimony about Jesus. And Paul says, don't be ashamed of this, because it's true. 
It's not contingent upon anything that could happen in this world, even suffering or persecution, because it began before this world began. The world, the physical reality we live in is just the stage where the divine story unfolds. And from eternity past to eternity future, the story is about the glory of God revealed in the gospel. Don't, don't be ashamed of it. It's the greatest story ever told. It's the true story. I don't know if you guys have seen this show, The Man in the High Castle. If you've read the book, apparently it's very different than the show. I don't read books, I watch shows. So I'm going to talk about the show for a second. Uh, the Man in the High Castle is, is, is uh, based on this premise that the Allies don't win World War II. And so the, the setting is the United States, but half of the U.S. is under control of Nazi Germany, half of the U.S. is under control of Imperial Japan, and, um, but they're, you know, it's like right the generation after the war, so there's Americans in it, but there is no such thing as America anymore. And uh, it's a bleak world. It's dark, particularly if you're watching it from the viewpoint of an American. Um, Pretty soon in the show, you become aware of a different world. And it's real mysterious. There's some other world out there, and it's captured in these glimpses through these films. There are these films that exist, and they show these pictures of of a free America, an America that we know. And so there's this other group. So there's the the Nazis and there's the Japanese, but then there's another group of people who are called the resistance. And they are captivated by these films. These are the people that know about the films. Some have seen parts of the films and, and their hope is in these things, that these things are true. Now what happens is some people get swept into that story, that reality. They didn't want to be a part of it, they were fine just sort of putting their head down and living in this new reality and, you know, just life is normal. But then they, they got a glimpse. They became aware. They got swept into this action somehow. And here's what happens. With every single person who sees the film, they can't go back. They want to. I mean, there are times where they're, you know, because it's dangerous, they just think, I want to get back to life as normal. And they just can't shake it. Once they've seen it, once they've seen the real story, They can't go back to anything else. That's what Paul's saying. Timothy, you have seen the real thing. Where else are you going to go now? There's nowhere else to go. It's all false. Don't be ashamed of the gospel story. It's the true story of the world, and you've seen it. You can't go back. It's not just the true story. It's the story we live in right now. So it's about events that happened in the past, but it has incredible bearing on our present reality. In the present, we live really with the same tension that Paul and Timothy lived with, uh, which is that their salvation has come, but not yet in full. Uh, Jesus has been raised from the dead, but he's not yet returned and made all things right. And so we live in this in-between times where things are still broken and there still is suffering. And two of the primary characteristics of these in-between times are suffering, but also power. You cannot read through the New Testament without coming over and over and over to these two realities, that there is suffering, but also there is great, divine, supernatural power for God's people. And there's a relationship 
between those two things. Uh, suffering, we, we've talked about a bit last week and a little bit today, but uh, the, the essential situation is that Paul has suffered greatly for preaching the gospel. And Timothy has shared in some of that suffering, and Timothy is facing perhaps more suffering because his job is to preach the gospel. And Paul is saying, well, this is the story we're in, man. And it's the true story. So there's nowhere else to go. So don't be ashamed of the gospel, but join in your share of suffering for it. And those are the two options that he gives them. These are your two options. If you're a Christian, you can, you can be ashamed of the gospel, or you can join in suffering for the gospel. And there's not really a whole lot of neutral ground. We want there to be. We want there to be this reality where we can be fully committed to the gospel of Jesus without cramping our lifestyle any. That world doesn't exist. So Paul's saying, look, these are your options, and I'm telling you, it is by far better. Go with the true story. Uh, C.S. Lewis said that we live in enemy-occupied territory, that, that we are those whose whose king, the rightful king, has landed, but, but somehow in disguise, and he has enlisted us in a campaign of sabotage, not too much unlike the man in the high castle, but what he's saying is, is if you're going to live under the reign of the rightful king and the unseen reality, if you're going to live the gospel story, then you're going to have to be willing to accept your share of suffering that comes with it. It's the only option you have. Paul says later in this letter, everyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. So it's not just them. It's everyone. Now listen, that's not all bad news that you'll be persecuted or that you may suffer, that you may have hardship. There's some really good news in it. And the really good news in it is that suffering is a chance to experience the power of God. There's a relationship between the two. Uh, you see it really clearly in Second Corinthians where Paul says, Paul had this, this hardship, this affliction, and he says, I asked God to take it away. And God said, no. And I was like, please? And he was like, no. I said, no. And Paul says, look, I asked God three times to take this thing away, to remove it. You know, because you know how you think. You know how you think when you're in suffering. You're like, well, if I could just not have this pain or if I could not have this circumstance, then I could really, you know, do some good. I could really connect with God and get out there and do some stuff. We just view suffering as something we need to shed. God views it as an opportunity to experience his power. And that's what he says to Paul. He says, no, listen, my grace is sufficient for you. So Paul says, look, here's what I learned. I learned to boast in my weakness. Because God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And so Paul says, good, weakness, that's what I have. And I boast in it so that the power of Christ might rest on me. I made that verse a lot longer than it is, but that's what he says. Who, who talks like that? Yeah, weakness. That's what I've got. Suffering. Yes, I want that. Who says that? People that have experienced the power of God in it. People who've experienced it. I was talking to a friend uh, earlier this week, actually, whose uh, father died recently in an accident, and it just, it created a really intense couple of months for him and for his family. 
And so for him, he's, you know, juggling all the stuff of being with his dad, who's on life support, um, ministering to his family, keeping up with a demanding job. And, and, and through all of that, just pressure and intensity kind of just came to the end of himself. Went through a really humbling experience. And he's telling me about it, and I'm like, oh, man, that's, that's awful. I'm so sorry. And he's saying, no, 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 no. God was there. I was like, what? He's like, no. God was there, man. See, what happened, he said, what, what felt like humiliation to me, I later saw was God's provision for me. It gave me an opportunity to see things I wouldn't have been able to see otherwise, to experience things I wouldn't have been able to experience otherwise. I saw God transform people's lives in a matter of weeks. I, I felt his presence in such real ways. I'm telling you, God was there, man. As I was talking with him, I couldn't help but notice how happy he sounded, how much joy was in his voice, and it just occurred to me, yeah, we don't, as Christians, we don't just get through suffering. We rejoice in suffering because God meets us in it. The power of Christ rests upon us in our weakness. He had experienced it. And there's no way in that moment that he could be ashamed of it. How could he possibly be ashamed of it? He'd experienced it. He'd tasted it. Uh, David says, King David, taste and see that the Lord is good. And when you look in the context of that psalm, he says, God delivered me from my fears, saved me out of my troubles. He's in a hard time. And then he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Because you know where you most get to taste and see that the Lord is good? in your troubles, in your weakness. It's a chance to experience the power of God. Uh, Very quickly, I just want you to see where this power comes from. It's not ambiguous. It comes to us in a person, in the person of the Holy Spirit. Paul has bookended this passage in this way. So in verse 6, he tells Timothy... God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit, of power and love and self-discipline. And then in verse 14, at the end of this text, he says to Timothy, by the Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to you. And so at the beginning and at the end, Paul is highlighting the work of the Spirit in the believer's life because he's saying that's where the power comes from. In other words, Paul's not asking Timothy to stir up some courage of his own, to to muster up some commitment. He's saying, tap into, rely upon the power of the Spirit in your life. And there's, there's a number of ways to think about how to do that. But in this text, there's a real centrality to the word because in verse 13, he says, follow the pattern of sound words as you heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And they says, by the Spirit, guard the good deposit. This is the content, the gospel. And so one of the ways the Spirit works in us is that when we get into the Word, when we open the Bible and read it by faith, He leads us into truth. He, he comforts us with God's Word. He convicts us of sin, challenges the way that we're thinking about life. He reminds us of the kingdom of God among us. And so we stir up the Spirit who dwells within us by getting into God's Word. The Spirit of God makes 
work, the person and the work of Jesus real to us. Right? Not just factual, but effectual in our lives. And then Paul says, guard this good deposit. Now here's what's interesting about this word good deposit in verse 14. It means handsome or beautiful. Uh, it means excellent or precious or magnificent. You see, what, you see what's happening? This is how Paul thinks of the gospel. Not as just this static collection of facts. It's something he's come to cherish and to love. You protect, you guard, you hold to whatever you cherish, whatever you love. And Paul loves the gospel, and he's telling Timothy, this is the most precious thing you've got, man. Guard it. Hold on to it. This is worth your whole life. So the Holy Spirit meets us and fills us, empowers us in two places at least. One, in the Word of God as we read in faith, and two, in our suffering, in our hardship, and whatever it takes for us to live for the gospel. He longs to do it. We want the power of God in our lives. I mean, we really want to experience it. I really believe that. The tension we always feel, though, is that we don't want to get into the, the circumstances or the situations where we would need it, right? We don't want to feel helpless or weak or overwhelmed. We don't want to feel any of that. But, but if you want to experience the power of Christ resting upon you, you're going to have to get to those places, when I was young in the faith, I was on this uh, missions trip over the summer. I had just learned how to talk about the gospel. And one night, I was sitting out in front of the hotel we were in, and Panama City Beach is just crazy at night. Cars, they just, this is what they do for fun. They just cruise. They just drive up and down the street. So there's just a traffic jam all the time. Well, we're out front, me and some of the students on this trip, and um, these guys, drunk guys, start yelling out their pickup truck to this girl that was standing next to me and, you know, just sort of catcalling. I think that's what you call it. And uh, I didn't know what to do. I felt offended by it. I, I felt like she was embarrassed. But I also felt like I don't want to, you know, here's like three drunk guys in a truck. What am, what am I going to do? And then finally, it just got to me, and I just yelled out at them, and I said, hey, we're talking about Jesus. Do you want to join us? So we're like from me to the back of the church, you know, almost to the back of the church in their street. And then this guy picks up the back of the window, and he goes, yeah. Oh, I thought you would say no. I thought you... <laughs> That's okay. You know, so he says, yeah. And I was like, all right, well, come here. And they're like, no, no, you come here because we don't want to lose our place in, in, in the traffic. And I was like, oh, this sounds like a trap. I'm young and naive. I walk over there. I lean into the truck. There's three guys. I was like, so have you guys ever heard about Jesus? And they're like, uh, yeah, man. And I don't know what to say next. Like, I don't have much training in this. I was like, okay. And, you know, and then you just begin to experience God giving you words. I was like, well, the way that you're acting toward my friend right now doesn't feel like he's a priority in your lives. And the guy in the back seat says, man, I know. That was wrong. I'm sorry. Like, this isn't the right thing. All right, so we end up having this like five, ten minute conversation about Jesus. But we're in this traffic jam, right? And, and we forget all about that. And uh, I walk back to the hotel afterward just full of adrenaline. I don't know, you know what's going on. And my friends are telling me that the whole time cars just were going around this truck, and that doesn't happen in PCB. You honk, you cuss, you... And he, I love the picture. He said, it was like Jesus was out there just, you know, waving the... <laughs> Nobody had any questions about it. 
Uh, there was another night where I had just that morning read Luke 7. I in my life had maybe read, you know, a dozen passages in the Bible, and I just that morning read Luke 7, which is a story of a prostitute coming to Jesus and wiping his feet with her tears. And we're out late one night, and I come upon this guy and this woman in front of this convenience store and start talking to them. And the guy says, are you a Christian? And I said, yeah. He goes, you read the Bible? I said, yeah. He goes, could you share a story from the Bible with my friend? I was like, sure. Any story in particular? He's like, do you know the story about the prostitute? Yes, I do, in fact. And so I'd just taken this story that I'd read that morning and shared it with this woman on the request of her friend. Turns out this woman is a prostitute and needed so desperately to hear that Jesus would allow her to come just as she is. Just, I've experienced things like that. Not just there, but in other places. And as I reflect on when I've experienced the power of God in my weakness, you know what's always true? What's always true is that my mindset in those moments is to see what God's up to and how I can be a part of it. I find that when I'm looking for opportunities, even though I'm in way over my head, God shows up in them. It's just the opposite of my normal day-to-day life. My normal day-to-day life, my mindset is just like, what needs to happen for me? I'm looking for ways to meet my needs. And God mercifully shows up there too, but it's not the same. If you want to live for the gospel, you've got to get in God's word and you've got to get yourselves in situations where you don't know what you're doing and you need God. And primarily that means just getting into people's lives and watch God show up. Here's the last thing, and we're going to do this so fast. Paul says, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I've believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been trusted me. There's the future. This is where the story ends. It ends on that day, the day when Christ returns. It's a day of judgment. It's a day when all of the questions we have about our suffering and all the mystery of how God uses it will come to light. We'll see. It's a day of victory because Christ's victory over Satan, sin, and death will be consummated. It's a day of glory because we'll see him face to face. Paul is motivated by that day. That's how he can say in Romans, the suffering of of this present day is not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed on that day. Paul lives for that day. And he's trying to help Timothy locate himself in that story. He's trying to say, listen man, don't live for this day. Set your eyes on that day. And the God who has entrusted us with the gospel will guard it. It's weird that Paul says God will guard it and then he tells Timothy to guard it. But what he realizes is that the way that God accomplishes his purposes is through his people. God will guard the gospel and he will guard the gospel through his people who guard the gospel. Because what's going to happen on that day, Paul knows is all of his suffering he's going to realize is worth it. Paul's going to get to see what, what he did with this stewardship, with this thing that had been entrusted to him. More than that, he'll get to see what God did with him. And Paul wants for Timothy the joy of standing before God on that day saying, I fought the good fight. I lived for the gospel. I tried to guard and care for this thing that you gave me. Paul wants Timothy to experience the joy of his master saying, well done, 
good and faithful servant. The gospel is the true story. It's our story. May we give ourselves to it. Let me pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.